Hello and welcome to episode one of the Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and in this series of podcasts, we hope to explore a number of works by the great late 18th, early 19th century composer Ludwig van Beethoven. Not too many classical music lovers would argue with Beethoven's credentials as one of the greatest composers of his or any other epoch. Much of his reputation has been based on the esteem in which his major works from the middle and later periods of his life are held. The symphonies, numbers 3, 5, 6, 7, and 9 in particular, are obviously considered to be among the greatest orchestral masterworks of all time. The piano sonatas, often described as the New Testament of music for the keyboard, are considered without parallel in their universe. Even Beethoven's choral masterpiece, the Misa Solemnis, and his soul opera, Fidelio, have long been certified as among the greatest of their respective genres, despite the fact that both have had their detractors over the years. Beethoven's string quartets have also been highly honored, with the middle period quartets in particular often seen as his greatest achievement. We hope to touch on all of these genres and many of these great works in the episodes ahead, but we're also going to take some time to talk about Beethoven's early works and some of his lesser-known compositions. And today, we're going to focus on early works for the piano. We're going to begin, though, with a little historical background. I'm not going to provide a great deal of biographical information in these podcasts, because that sort of information is readily available elsewhere, and because I'm going to try to focus more on individual works by the composer and how they were put together. But today, just to get us started, I want to make a few points about Beethoven's early years in Bonn. In the later 18th century, Bonn was a prosperous, small to medium-sized city sitting on the west bank of the Rhine River, south of Cologne. Its major claim to fame, at least before Beethoven's birth and early career there, was that it had been for centuries the historical home for the electors of Cologne. Through its patronage, the electors' court held a great deal of significance for the arts, especially music. A number of musicians were employed by the elector Maximilian Friedrich to entertain himself and his guests, and when he died and Maximilian Franz replaced him as elector in 1784, the situation for musicians was to become even brighter. One of the most valuable components of the elector's musical establishment was Ludwig van Beethoven, the grandfather of the famous composer and a well-respected musician, a bass singer, who had held professional positions in Belgium before accepting the position in Bonn in 1733. In 1761, he was granted the prestigious position of Kapellmeister at the court. So Ludwig the Grandfather was fortunate in his musical career and well-placed, and by the way, he also had a rather successful sideline as a wine merchant. But he was less successful in his private life. His wife developed a drinking problem that developed into full-scale alcoholism, and she spent the last years of her life in an institution. The elder Ludwig's son, Johann, who was to become our Ludwig's father, also became a professional musician attached to the court at Bonn. But here the similarities with the elder Ludwig ended. Johann was, by most reports, a singer of limited ability whose vocal skills began to desert him early on. As musicologist Alan Tyson has bluntly put it, he was not the man his father was. 
Still, Johann was sufficiently competent on piano and violin that he was able to give lessons in both, thereby adding to his own modest income. He and his wife, Maria Magdalena, were to have seven children, only three of whom survived infancy. Our Ludwig van Beethoven was the first to survive, baptized on December 17th, probably born a day earlier. Three more of the couple's children were to die prematurely, and two brothers survived, one of whom in particular went on to play a large, if not particularly positive, role in Ludwig's life some years later. History has been no kinder to Johann as a father than as a musician. He did recognize his son's talent at an early age and began to train Ludwig in the rudiments of music and provided him with some instruction in piano and violin as well, primarily with an eye to increasing the family income as quickly as possible, and perhaps with the notion that Ludwig would become another child prodigy like Mozart. But Johann's approach to teaching seems to have been rigid and mechanical, and he actually appears to have discouraged his son's early attempts at composing. By the way, Ludwig's mother appears not to have played much of a role in her son's education, musical or otherwise. Relatively little is known about her, but it's often assumed that she was kind-hearted, quiet, and serious, perhaps even given to bouts of depression. Johann was clearly the dominant member of the pair, and he appeared more than ready to dominate his son in order to achieve the desired results. While little Ludwig did receive some instruction in music from his father and a few local teachers, his general education was, unfortunately, almost completely neglected, with Beethoven never going beyond the equivalent of an elementary school education, although, to be fair, this was fairly typical for the time and place for a boy whose family was of modest means and who showed no particular academic skill. Historians have long speculated on the after-effects of this limited education, some pointing out that the adult Beethoven was notoriously weak in mathematics and often seemed haphazard in his spelling and punctuation. Still, despite his lack of formal education, it seems clear that Beethoven did develop strong intellectual interests even beyond music and his adult tastes in literature, including the writings of Goethe, Schiller, and Kant, among others, were impressively varied. While Johann does not seem to have dealt with his son with particular sensitivity, he did see the value of connecting him in 1779 with Christian Gottlob Neffe when he arrived in Bonn as the director of an opera company. Neffe was a more substantial musician and composer than anyone the young Ludwig had encountered up to that point, and their association paid off immediately. When Neffe also became court organist for the elector, he chose the young Beethoven to become his assistant. He also introduced the young composer to more sophisticated music, including the preludes and fugues of Bach's well-tempered clavier, not typical repertoire for a young pianist at the end of the 18th century. Later, a place was found for young Beethoven as a keyboard player in the court orchestra, a position that gave him some exposure to some of the popular operas of the period, including Mozart's. About this time, Ludwig probably began studying violin and viola with Franz Ries, a family friend whose son, Ferdinand, would become a close friend of Beethoven's and a valuable source of information about the composer's younger years. This advanced instruction would eventually lead, by 1789, to Ludwig's professional success as a violist in the court orchestra, 
an experience that was to be of lasting benefit to him as a composer, giving him first-hand experience with negotiating the inner parts of string writing. Unlike Beethoven's father, Nefa also encouraged the young man's early compositional attempts and even helped him find a publisher for his first real work when he was just 12 years old, a set of variations on a march by Dressler. That's the piece we're going to look at first, a piece which was, probably also at Nefa's urging, dedicated to Countess Wolf Metternich, with the understanding that it's never too early to get on the good side of possible future patrons. At first glance, it's a little difficult to determine why this particular march would have caught the young Beethoven's ear. It's largely unremarkable, although not without some interesting details. It certainly has a properly military air about it, featuring as it does block chords and repeated data note rhythms in the left-hand accompaniment in the first four bars. The melody enfolds in two four-bar phrases typical of the late 18th century style, the first beginning and ending of the key of C minor, and the second migrating to the relative major key of E-flat. The block chords in the accompaniment anchor a simple, mostly stepwise melody that ascends to a peak in the middle of the phrase before making a gradual, undulating return back to the original note. Here is the first eight-bar section. Perhaps the most distinctive gesture in the melody comes in the first two measures, where it leaps up a somewhat unusual tritone, or augmented fourth, to a dissonance on the downbeat of bar two. Other than that, it's all pretty conventional. The second four-bar phrase displays some direct repetition, the first two bars are identical, and shows more reliance on those same dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms. The second eight-bar section shows a little more harmonic variety at first, but brings back many of the same motivic ideas from the first section, and soon settles back solidly into the original tonic of C minor, and finishes with the same dotted eighth sixteenth rhythms that began the piece. In short, Dressler's tune is moderately catchy, and his harmonic accompaniment mildly colorful. Here is the second eight-bar section. Now let's take a look at what Beethoven does with this melody in variation number one. Sets of variations of this sort often begin rather modestly, and it's certainly true in this instance. The melody is taken over from the original virtually note for note, although a few grace notes are added. The left-hand accompaniment is new, although quite modest. Beethoven makes use of broken chord patterns throughout, the two lowest notes from the chord played together on the downbeat and the third note on the offbeat sounding like this. Since other than changing the accompaniment patterns, not the harmony itself, there's not much varying going on here, I'm just going to play the first eight bars.
as we proceed through the variations, we find that the young Beethoven varies the tune in rather conventional ways, sometimes by replacing the original contour of the melody with fast-moving scale lines and arpeggio patterns, only letting the original tune peek through occasionally. He seems perfectly happy to leave the original harmonic pattern intact for the most part. Here are the first eight bars of variation number two. For variation three, Beethoven keeps the melody largely intact, but the left-hand chords are now expressed by fast-moving Alberti bass patterns, incorporating a series of lower neighbor tones, which add a more driving rhythmic quality to the accompaniment. Along the way, he also introduces some minor changes to the harmonic fabric, for example, briefly replacing a dominant seventh chord with a full diminished seventh leading tone chord. These two chords do have very similar harmonic functions, but the diminished chord is a little more tension-filled. Here are the first eight bars. Variation four returns to the broken chord accompaniment heard in the first variation, with a scampering 16th note melodic flow which moves higher in the pianist's range and contains a distinctive little descending chromatic scale in the second to last measure of both sections. Again, the first eight measures. Beethoven's variations do get a bit more adventurous and certainly more virtuosic as he proceeds. Variation 5 focuses on alternating octaves in right and left hands and 32nd note triad bass couplets tossed back and forth. Variation 6, less virtuosic, reshapes the melodic contour in the right hand while adding trills into the equation and some unexpected octave shifts. Meanwhile, the left hand reverts to a simpler Alberti-based style accompaniment while, as usual, keeping to the original chord progression. Variation 7 slows the rhythmic activity in the left hand considerably while adding eighth note triplets to the partially reshaped melody. Variation 8 returns to the left hand accompaniment pattern of the very first variation, while the melody unfolds in a series of rapid 16th note arpeggio patterns, which still manage to reflect some of the key melodic features of the original theme.
The final variation is clearly the most abstract and most remotely related to the original theme. It is, first of all, in C major, although it's by no means unusual for a set of variations to feature at least one in the opposite mode. The variation begins with 16th note scale patterns in C major sweeping quickly up the scale with the harmonic rhythm doubled, whereas the original theme had unfolded over the tonic chord, that is the chord built on the first note of the scale, for one measure before moving on to the dominant chord, the chord built on the fifth note of the scale, for the second measure, this variation sustains the tonic chord for the first two measures before moving on to the dominant chord, and so forth. As a result, whereas the first section of the original theme was eight measures long, the length of the first section for this final variation is 16 measures long. There are some other changes as well, whereas the original theme moved from C minor to E flat major in the first section, in this variation, the music moves from C major to G major. Here's the first section. The second section is a little more harmonically adventurous than one might expect, given the fact that Beethoven had seldom to this point dared to venture very far from the original harmonic progression associated with Dressler's March. But with this final variation in C major rather than C minor, the harmonic rules of the game have changed. In the first section, Beethoven substituted a move to G major for the original move to E flat major. Now in the second section, whereas the original move from E flat major back to C minor, Beethoven begins by introducing a chord which is to push him toward D minor, where he pauses briefly before starting to make his way back to C major for the final cadence. This is not by any means a shocking or even striking maneuver for the young Beethoven to take, but it does show him willing to inject some, at least mildly unpredictable elements, into the mix. So, what are we to think of these variations by the 12-year-old Beethoven? Neva thought well of them, and Neva was an excellent musician. They are in some ways a very conventional set of variations, but there are bursts of energy and enough clever little twists and turns that even now it's possible to see a spark of the creativity for which Beethoven later becomes so well known. We're going to turn now to another composition by the young Beethoven, a rondo in C major, W-O-O-48, meaning number 48 of the works not originally given an opus number. The rondo form was frequently encountered in the classic period, and it's not terribly complicated. There are different types of rondos, but most begin with the main theme, sometimes referred to as a refrain, and often rhythmically lively or dance-like in nature, and then go on to a contrasting idea, a new melodic idea often called an episode, usually in a new key. Then the original theme or refrain is heard again, back in the original tonic key, followed by another contrasting section or episode, 
another new melody, sometimes also in a new key. Then the refrain theme comes back again in tonic, and there may be a little tag or coda on the end. That's what is often referred to as a short rondo, often symbolized as A, B, A, C, A. There are more complicated versions of the form, but we're not going to get into those today. So, let's look at what Beethoven does with the form. His rondo in C major opens with a nice little refrain theme, sort of like Mozart in his naive mode. The theme is really only eight bars long, unfolding in a series of short symmetrical phrases. It starts on the fifth of the scale and begins by moving down the tonic triad, the second measure being a variant of the first over the dominant seventh chord. The second half of the theme, bars five through eight, is obviously livelier, consisting of a series of sixteenth notes in broken thirds or scale patterns, with Beethoven's use of staccato marks adding a lot of character. The entire eight-bar theme is then repeated, this time with little grace notes added to the repeated notes. The harmony is pretty simple throughout, mostly alternations between tonic and dominant chords, although there is a little passing chromaticism in the bass in the sixth measure, which hints at a third chord, a secondary dominant chord, one which acts briefly as the dominant of the chord that comes after it. The entire 16-bar refrain ends as expected on the tonic chord, and we now expect to hear the first contrasting episode. And we do, sort of. But before I play it and try to describe it, I want to say a few words about the difference between academic forms and actual music. Earlier, I tried to describe what happens in a rondo form, how the refrain is followed by an episode in a new key, etc. But in real 18th century music, things don't always work out quite the way you draw them up. It's true that there are a lot of compositions based on the rondo form that do make use of the form as I've described it. But there are also a lot of compositions that unfold differently from the way I've described it. Maybe the keys don't work out quite the way I suggested. Or maybe there are two episodes in a row without returning to the refrain theme in between. There are all sorts of ways in which the actual music may differ from the textbook definition of the form. These are not mistakes, of course. Classic period composers did not keep looking up at a chart on the wall as they were writing their pieces to make sure they were getting the form right. They were familiar with the forms used by other composers, those before them and their contemporaries. They were aware of what their audiences expected to hear and what made sense to their audiences, and they proceeded to act accordingly but they were by no means sticklers when it came to following the normal forms of the period, not only a relatively simple form like the rondo, but also more complex forms like the Sonata Allegro form about which we'll talk later. But for now, back to Beethoven. He's given us the refrain theme, so what do we get next? It could be just a middle section for the refrain theme, especially if it were followed by a return of the opening eight bars of the refrain, but that's not what happens. So, we are inclined to hear it as a new idea, that is, the first episode. At 20 measures in length, 
It's a little longer than the refrain theme. But then there's the key problem. We might expect this episode to be in the key of the dominant, also known as G major. It's true that the left hand, now moved up to the treble clef, keeps repeating the note G, but overall it just doesn't sound G majorish, as if G were really the tonic note until very late in the game. But the melody is in many respects new, just as we would expect for an episode. Some of the rhythmic ideas are the same as in the refrain, but it starts on the third of the scale on an E, whereas the refrain started on the fifth on a G. Furthermore, the trajectory is ascending, a gradual rise from E up to G, although there is some backtracking along the way. Another new thing is the use of chromaticism, accidentals, notes not found in the C major scale, which are added, providing a little temporary dissonance in places, but also increasing the sense of momentum, the urgency with which one note or chord moves to the next. After this sort of episode, we might expect that he would return to the refrain theme back in tonic, but instead we encounter another new idea. It certainly sounds new insofar as the melodic content in the right hand now consists of an ascending melodic line starting on the fifth of the scale embedded into a repeated figuration pattern, a triadic bass pattern that moves up and down the chord, repeated from measure to measure, but changing according to its harmonic identity, what chord the pattern projects. As you probably notice, the pattern, which moves from piano to fortissimo, breaks off after 11 bars, having modulated to the key of D major. And then there's a softer 8-bar addition or transition passage that ends pianissimo with a fermata on a D major chord. Is this two episodes in a row, or is it just one very long episode with two parts? Episodes can certainly be longer than the refrain theme, but there does seem to be a rather significant break in the action between the two sections, so it's difficult to know for sure. At this point, we probably assume that whatever we want to call the last two sections were due for a return to the refrain theme. But again, that's not what we get. At first glance, this appears to be a classic sort of episode. It's in the minor mode, G minor, the minor dominant in this case, rather than the minor version of the tonic, so it has a unique sound. And yet, there are some very familiar elements. The contour of the opening measures, played piano, bears a close resemblance to that of the opening bars of our refrain theme, and the rhythmic ideas are similar as well. And the left-hand accompaniment, it falls into arpeggio patterns in very much the same manner as did the accompaniment in the first four bars of the refrain. Now, of course, there are differences. The resemblance is mostly to the first four bars of the refrain. The second four bars of that theme are not represented here, not even in varied form. Also, the harmony unfolds differently here than in the original refrain. We actually move gradually from G minor towards C minor here, where a variant of the same thematic idea is then stated forte in octaves, 
ending on a dominant chord. The dynamic level then increases again to fortissimo, and Beethoven provides a retransition of 12 bars in which the dynamics fluctuate, similar to the transition that led us into the current section and one that ends on the dominant. And yet, despite these differences, one does get the feeling that what we have here is something like a variant of the original refrain theme rather than another completely contrasting episode, although the degree of contrast does increase as we proceed through the section. In the excerpt you just heard, you also got a sneak preview of what happens next, and it is, in fact, finally, the return of the original refrain in the original key of C major, or at least most of it. The last two bars are cut off, and we plunge back into another episode, no transition this time, a new episode in C minor. It begins forte, drops down suddenly to piano for a single bar, and then back to forte. The melodic material consists of 16th note passages based on various arpeggio patterns and descending scale lines, although the rhythmic activity in the right hand does slow down for a bit when we modulate to E-flat major, rather suddenly, actually. Here we encounter yet another new melodic idea, while the left hand takes over with triadic arpeggios. When the 16th note flow finally peters out, we hear another retransition related again to the first transition which we heard that returns us to C minor and comes to a stop on a fermata on the dominant. It's the last transition from the last episode, and after an extended trill in the right hand, we soon arrive back at the original refrain theme in C major once again, extended just a bit this time with a final cadential tag. My last excerpt will go from the middle refrain through the last episode and transition and through to the end. So this particular early rondo by Beethoven seems to have taken a few liberties with the prescribed form, but it doesn't represent ineptitude on Beethoven's part. Under Neffe's tutelage, he was surely well aware of what a conventional rondo form looked like, nor does it represent some radical new departure from convention. It was simply Beethoven's version of a rondo at that point in his career, one for which the episodes may have been the highlight of the piece and which shows an early penchant for dramatic contrast and a clever manipulation of the musical momentum. We're going to look at one more early work for piano by Beethoven. It's another theme in Variations, W.O.O. 66, composed in 1792, this time based on an aria, as far einmal ein alter Mann, Once Upon a Time There Was an Old Man, by Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf, 
a very popular composer of comic operas in the late 18th century who knew and was respected by both Haydn and Mozart. The composing of variations on well-known melodies from popular operas was a common practice in Beethoven's period and a surefire way for a relatively unknown composer to spark a little interest among pianists, especially opera-loving pianists, most of them amateurs. The aria in A major and 2-4 time is like most of Ditterdorf's, catchy and fairly simple. The first part features three melodic ideas, each of them repeated, and moving from A major to E major. After a dramatic cutoff and fermata, a new idea is introduced, although one clearly related to the third. And then the original phrase is brought back in varied form, and a short tag takes us to the final cadence. Here is the melody as quoted in Beethoven's Variations. I'm only going to play a few of Beethoven's variations, starting with the second, where he transfers a variation of the melody initially to the left hand. But the treatment of the melody here is a little freer than anything we saw in the Dressler variations. The ascending line in eighth notes in the first measure of the original is now translated into sixteenth notes and prefaced by a new upbeat motive now featuring a prominent lower neighbor tone. In the measures that follow, Ditterdorf's second melodic idea is replaced by a brand new one, with only the slightest glimmer of a connection with the original. Furthermore, it's a lot more interesting than the original because of its interplay and exchange of motives between the hands. The second section after the cutoff is also quite different, although the original underlying chord progression is mostly respected. The main melodic activity is back in the right hand, but has a distinctive personality of its own, restricted primarily to a series of octave leaps moving gradually downward. There are references to the original tune as we head toward the final measures, but they are overshadowed by a driving new motive which Beethoven largely plucks out of the air. And then we have Beethoven's frequent and often abrupt fluctuations in dynamics occurring in both sections, whereas Dittersdorf's original score is marked piano throughout. Here is the second variation. Thank you. 
We'll skip to variation 6 in A minor, which represents a complete transformation of the character of Dittersdorf's modest little aria. Resemblances to the original melody are a bit hard to come by, although Beethoven retains the general contour of the opening melody and, to a point, its repetitive nature. After the cutoff, there's not much of the original to hang on to. Instead, we have a series of slow-developing suspensions over block chords. These soon yield to a more conventional right-hand melody that evokes the original tune just a bit, but then a series of dark, expressive chords take us to the final cadence. There's a little irony involved here, of course, taking such a simple tune and treating it in this oh-so-serious manner, but it's likely a tongue-in-cheek irony of the sort that might well be appreciated by pianists, amateur or otherwise. Most of the variations that follow, there are 13 in all, are more conventional in the manner in which they treat the melody and the types of rhythmic transformation, ornamentation, and decoration they apply to it although the section after the cutoff and fermata is often given special treatment that marks it off from the rest of the variation. For the sake of closure on this piece, we'll play the final variation in the form of a rousing march. Taking these variations as a whole, I think we can definitely detect more creativity than in the Dressler variations. Although some of Beethoven's variations here are played close to the vest, in others Beethoven seems to be a bit more confident regarding his own powers of invention. He does not hesitate, at least in some variations, 
to introduce striking new motives against which Bitterdorf's originals seem pale indeed. I'm not suggesting that every new work by Beethoven, or by any other composer for that matter, necessarily represents some sort of advance over his or her previous compositions, even those from an earlier decade. Few composers take such a predictable path, but it's a pretty large leap from Dressler to Dittersdorf, and I think that's evident in the music. We're going to take a very brief look at a final theme in variations today, based on another very popular and even more widely known melody, God Save the King, W.O.O. 78, which is usually thought to have been composed a full ten years later than the Dittersdorf variations by the not-so-young Beethoven, who would have been about 32 years old. Here's his presentation of the theme in two sections, the first only six bars long and the second nine bars long. The first variation is a subtle one, but very effective. It relies on rhythmic displacements and gentle syncopations in the first section, and a series of sliding chromatic additions in the middle and lower voices in the second. The second variation has an almost invention-like quality in the first section, with left and right hands unfolding in brisk two-part counterpoint in sixteenth notes. The second section is more figuration-based, with the left hand relaxing at first into eighth notes before joining up again with the right hand's torrent of sixteenths. The harmonic structure remains mostly intact, and the original melody does peek out occasionally.
Variation 4 is an exercise in the rhythmic interplay of short two-note and slightly longer three-note motives, delivered in an exaggeratedly bombastic style. It provides the perfect foil for Variation 5, a very restrained and wonderfully lyrical and expressive variation in 3-4 time, marked by constantly flowing triplets and some subtle but wonderful harmonic surprises. I'm going to play an excerpt from about midway through Variation 4 into Variation 5. Number six is another march-like variation, a little less inspired than the others perhaps, so we're going to skip it. The seventh and last variation is the most stylistically diverse. It begins modestly enough with a variation of the melody in the left hand against a repeated figuration pattern in the right. The melody is then absorbed into that figuration pattern and subject to some coquettish rhythmic transformations. Then, in what is labeled as a coda, Beethoven pulls out a few last tricks. First, we shift for a few measures to adagio and hear a series of solemn block chords embodying the melody, and then back to Allegro, where it is largely a race to the finish.
So, we've looked at one early rondo, a couple of early variations, and one not-so-early variation based on a very well-known theme. That's all for this episode. For the next, we'll take a look at a couple of Beethoven's early piano quartets.